Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Carl Nellis, and today we're talking with Andrew Cole, professor of English and director of the Goss Seminars and Criticism at Princeton University. We're talking about Andrew's new book, The Birth of Theory, published in 2014 by the University of Chicago Press. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you. You make some significant contributions uh, with this book to theory and to an intellectual history of theory as it's developed uh, really to the present day. And you do that by exploring the long and often neglected medieval period of uh, development in dialectics, and particularly the way that uh, Hegel drew on medieval theologians and philosophers and their work in developing his own sense of dialectics. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to this project and got you started? Good. Well, thank you so much. Uh, And again, thank you for this opportunity to talk about uh, my book uh, with you. Um, Yeah, the book was really something I've been thinking about for a very long time. I would say that my work on the Middle Ages, and I'm a professor of medieval literature primarily, that my work on the Middle Ages and my education on the medieval period was coterminous with my study of philosophy, my uh, discovery of Marx when I was an undergraduate, and then from Marx to Hegel, and a very difficult class on metaphysics uh, at Loyola University in Chicago back in the late 80s. Um, so my work as a medievalist has always been linked to my work as a theorist, uh, thinking about questions of intellectual history, thinking about the philosophical, not only ideological or political, but the philosophical importance of studying medieval culture, uh, studying the deep past. So, uh, my education and my writing all the way through to the PhD, um, where I worked at and graduated from Duke University, um, was involved in linking these two questions together. But I, at the time when I finished my PhD, I wasn't quite ready to offer something like the birth of theory. Um, and I uh, wrote the birth of theory, uh, probably, uh, there, there's some material in the book that goes back to 1995. Um, so it's, it's, it's a book I've been thinking about for a very long time. Um, and I can't imagine thinking about the Middle Ages without thinking about philosophy and intellectual history. Yeah, on that on that note, let's dive in and and talk about the book and and where you start, because uh, at the outset, you set yourself some really interesting challenges with this book. Um, You you say you want to explain a long arc of intellectual history that puts Plotinus, Proclus, Pseudo-Dionysius, uh, Eckhart, Hegel, and Heidegger all within the same long tradition of dialectical thinking. Right, right. Uh, you say you want to address what makes Hegel truly Hegelian. Right. Uh, you even set yourself uh, what seems to me the challenging task of reconciling uh, Deleuze with with dialectics. And then to get that whole thing kicked off, you start with Nietzsche. Right. Can we talk a little bit about <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, yeah. why Nietzsche to get us going? Right. Thank you so much for that. Um, What I was really wanting to do is to try to unthink Hegel. I think that it's now impossible to think about what Hegel 
has contributed to modern thought, what Hegel has contributed to philosophy, what the Hegelian difference is from his notorious, well-known predecessor, Kant. I mean, there are figures in between, <laughs> right? Uh, but I'm very much interested in what makes Hegel different from anyone else writing at the time, including Schelling. Um, to unthink what we know about Hegel, which includes to, you know, unthinking the cliches that we are so familiar with about Hegel. And so uh, the starting point there would have to be, I really do think, I mean, I can understand where a starting point would be Marx. Um, indeed, I could see where a starting point could be Schelling. I mean, these two notoriously got into it with one another um, in terms of how Hegelianism is caricaturized, right? Uh, how it's sort of generated into a cliche. But I wanted to start with Nietzsche uh, because it seemed to me that Nietzsche is a single moment, well, also in the birth of theory, also in a critique of philosophy as such also in a critique of certain kinds of conceptuality that are inherited uh, from Kant, therefore also a critique of the subject. Okay, So it seems that Nietzsche would be the person who would be most challenging to this account, that you can't get through an account of the birth of theory without getting through Nietzsche. Okay, mm-hmm. um, And this is where Deleuze hooks up with the question, because we know uh, Deleuze's famous work uh, is an early work, but... Um, uh, Nietzsche and philosophy, I think, is a source of cliches about Hegelianism in modern thinking. And it's the beginning, including for Deleuze himself, which I think Deleuze is misleading himself. But it's that book, Nietzsche and philosophy, is the beginning of this antagonism, uh, this wide chasm between Deleuzeanism and Hegelianism. And so I thought if I could get that question addressed, which indeed the chapter is both somewhat about, it's, it's largely about Nietzsche. We're talking about the first chapter called The Untimely Dialectic in the Birth of Theory. Um, if I, it's mostly about Nietzsche, but it's also framed uh, with respect to Deleuze, right? And that anticipates um, my conversation in the final chapter called On Dialectical Interpretation, which returns to the question of Deleuze. So that's the first part of that answer, is to say, dealing with the cliches. Right. Uh, because the cliches sort of screen some of the more obvious features of what Hegel's dialectic is. And this is the se- second difficulty, I believe, is getting someone to answer the question of what is Hegel's dialectic? I think it's a question that is simple to answer. I think it's a question that's been answered too complexly. The question is answered simply because the answer involves a very complex logical process that was invented, and this is where we uh, bring forth then the figures that you had mentioned as well, Plotinus, Proclus, Pseudo-Dionysius, a whole range of thinkers, but that the logical form at the center of the dialectic is the logical form of identity and difference. Okay, so when we, on my account, when we talk about the dialectic, fundamentally, we are talking about the interplay, the relationship, the tensions between identity and difference. Now, in subsequent philosophical thinking, you have identitarian philosophy, identity philosophy, you have philosophies of difference, right? Um, we can choose one side of this, well, let's call it a binary, I call it a dialectic, but we can choose one side of this binary um, and still not get very far from the other term. I think this is the case with uh, Deleuze uh, in a philosophy of difference or a philosophy of multiplicity. Um, now what we see is an, sort of a, a 
an emphasis on the negative, which I, I still consider in similar terms. And then, of course, the identitarian philosophies that uh, Theodore Adorno critiques uh, early in his, well, <coughs> appropriately titled Negative Dialectics. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it is to remove the cliches, to look at the obviousness of the, of the complexity uh, of, of, of the dialectic itself. That is, what makes it so interesting, what makes it so dynamic, what makes it move, Indeed, what makes it dialectical are these two uh, logical categories. So um, I detailed a little bit of that in the preface. Uh, then I want to go into, again, in chapter one, um, the uh, Nietzschean reception of that. And what I want to say with Nietzsche and why I picked Nietzsche's birth of tragedy as a site uh, for, you know, thinking about the birth of theory um, is because Nietzsche does some really complex things there. Um, he does not talk uh, in terms of Hegelian cliches so much. Uh, he, the, the thing to really to notice is that when he cites the dialectic as this, let's call it a four-letter word, right? Um, <laughs> dialectic bad, um, dialectic Socrates. Uh, he never says dialectic Hegel. He had plenty of opportunity to do this. He never did that. What does that mean? Okay, and then secondarily, what does it mean um, that when Socrates came along, dialectic became um, all that's bad about uh, not only ancient but modern thinking and philosophy? Um, and his imaginative history that, you know, because it, it's very, very speculative. I mean, um, he wants to sort of ask for this, you know, return to tragedy in a new way that sometimes feels like, you know, if we could, you know, sometimes he's like he's asking us all to be creative anachronists of some new kind, uh, which makes a certain amount of sense because, the, you know, his um, time, his culture, including Nietzsche himself, was very much mesmerized. Well, really mesmerized by two things, uh, classical antiquity on the one hand and the medieval past on the other. Um, you can think Novalis is an example of that, I would say. Um, but. So what does he want to do? What, what will cure all that ails the present for Nietzsche? It is to go back to the time before Socrates, uh, to the time when we didn't call this operation dialectic, but what we, what, but what we experience in our encounter with the tragic form um, is... Uh, you know, in this encounter between Apollo and Dionysius is this interplay of identity, identity and difference. Um, it's Nietzsche's way of saying we can no longer think of dialectic productively without the cliches, but here is something that is absolutely valuable to uh, the genesis of uh, tragedy in some sense of lyric culture, in some sense of literature, uh, and if we could return to identity and difference or at least uh, perform a speculative history uh, that will get us thinking within these categories again, then, of course, uh, modernity would start to look different and would have a renewed understanding of its own past. So that's sort of Nietzsche as a model for a way of doing the history of dialectic. And the lesson there, I think, primarily is is this. It's that we are accustomed to thinking about logic and logical terms um, as 
having always been there as being sort of objective. Um, the argument here and the practice that I seek to follow after Nietzsche, okay, um, is that logical forms have a history in themselves, that concepts have a history in them themselves. And that's, 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 that's Hegelian. I mean, I, I really can't think of another philosopher before Hegel who had argued this, that um, we can do philosophy, we can explore these conceptualities, we can do logic indeed, but then to sort of step back and to have this self-reflexive analysis of the moment, the time, the present that makes this kind of conceptuality possible, I can't think of anyone else who does that. And that, to me, is what distinguishes theory from philosophy, um, is on the one hand, um, trying to construct these conceptual architectures that uh, pertain across time. Uh, this was the critique of Kant um, in the moment of cultural studies and cultural materialism in the 80s and 90s. Um, it, it came with the critique of the Althusserian subject as well, but the idea that you would see in a lot of, st in, in a lot of, um, of the critical writing in, in the late 80s and 90s was we must reject the transcendental subject because, right, all subjects are embodied, uh, all subjects are in desire, all, you know, all uh, the things that we think it makes is just plain common sense. Uh, you talk about a person, in other words, not a term used a lot in theory, but you, 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 you talk about a person in context, in history. Um, and so, again, the, 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 the basic lesson that I, that I want to get, take from that is this pertains to the history of identity and difference, those two conceptual terms. Um, and that, that's what chapter two, um, entitled The Medieval Dialectic, really gives us, is it's an attempt to write an origins story. I mean, these things are um, well, right. You have to be careful about writing origin stories, especially when you're doing something as preposterous as a history of the dialectic from Plato and Aristotle to Jameson and beyond. I'm fully aware of that. And in the book, I say this is a narrow investigation. I mean, I am, you know, floating six feet off the ground here, even if that it seems stratospheric, stratospheric because it's about the dialectic, logical forms intellectual history, medieval stuff, which is weird to most people and right <laughs> and, and not sort of um, familiar in terms of discussing modern theory. Um, but it is to trace the emergence of the categories of identity and difference as they are properly and dialectically understood. And that's where Plotinus comes in as the foundational figure. Uh, under the discipline, under the name of the discipline of dialectic, Plotinus reorganizes the platonic primals, the five, the five primes, in other words, uh, being motion, rest, identity, and difference, and says what stands at the top of this, you know, these five primaries is identity and difference, and that what, and it, that you put them there in the name of dialectic. And then from there, Plotinus practices a kind of dialectical thinking in, 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 in logical terms. Um, that really replicate some of the more lovely moments or anticipate, I should say, um, some of the more lovely and ponderous moments that you find in Hegel. And it was in that connection then that I wanted to proceed to say, okay, you have, you know, you go from Plotinus to Hegel. How did we get there? And the way you get there, which is always usually the story, but you get there by going through the Middle Ages. 
by going through the reception history of Plotinus, by looking at what happens to the dialectic of identity and difference across the centuries, um, which then brings us up to Hegel and the terrible mistake that I think that he was making at the time. I mean, it turned out to be um, a a happy mistake or a happy fault, right? But it was to say, um, all the while he's doing... um, sort of um, teaching in secondary schools, doing gymnasium teaching. Um, I think if he had to admit it, he would say, yes, he was eyeing the chair of philosophy at Berlin all along. Very ambitious individual, he, uh, Hegel, um, that his way to make his mark in modern philosophy is is to embrace the very thing that Kant said, um, in his moment of, you know, in his Copernican revolution of philosophy is the thing that we must reject, um, which is the dialectic. So it's entirely a stupid move, if you really want to think about it that way, that I'm going to do something new by doing something completely old, um, doing something that no Kantian and his or her right mind would adopt. And so that's how you get to Hegel. That's the question of the past and the present. That's the question of anachronism and theory, that's the question of historical unevenness, um, where you go, you know, depending on where you are, you're at a different moment in time. And th- and that's where Hegel's philosophy is perfect for this kind of thinking, um, which we would call dialectical thinking. So let, let me put a full stop there to see if, um, um, if there's something I can elaborate on. Yeah, let's um before we go too far forward, I just want to mention that you've structured the book in three parts, um two chapters each. The first you call theory and the second history and the third literature. But even in that first uh section, the second chapter really kind of jumps back. It, the second chapter is called The Medieval Dialectic, and you explore in more detail um, the way that the dialectic of identity and difference developed through Plotinus, through Proclus, through Nicholas of Cusa, and you're really careful to note that it's not like dialectics was monolithic in the Middle Ages. Uh, you even are really careful to note that identity and difference was just one of the many dialectics that were um, explored. Can you talk a little bit more about those uh, medieval dialecticians before we really jump forward into that second section of the book, history? Oh, yes, yes, I would love to. Um, just a little, so a footnote to the opening out of the question. I mean, where are um, Proclus and Nicholas of Cusa and even you would, and even Heidegger, who some would say, oh, does he really belong in this narrative? But all three, and the answer to that is yes, because all three are part of a tradition commentating on the Parmenides. Um, so the, the, what's new here is a different way, a new way of commenting on this widely commented upon text, the Parmenides. Um, and there are moments where I show Hegel um, is very aware that uh, the kind of dialectic of identity and difference that you know, we're discussing here is not available in Plato, is not available in Aristotle. So and so what, what, I, what I'm interested in there is looking at the various ways in which these medieval thinkers are aware of that. Um, they um, are very much following Plotinus, even Heidegger, in commenting on the Parmenides in this fashion. Um, now, th- this is absolutely right, though, what you point out. Um, there are different kinds of dialectic in the Middle Ages. Um, I think the one that concerns me the most and the one that 
I think tends to take over early modern philosophy. Um, there are some successions, uh, uh, successions. Oh, there are some successions. Yes, I'll, I have to say it that way. Uh, and, and Giordano Bruno, for instance, um, where you can see more of a kind of uh, Plotinian dialectic at work there. But a major different kind of dialectic that is not the one that I'm discussing here. It has to be, I think, the skeptical dialectic, the, the dialectic of, um, of Sextus Empiricus. Um, that dialectic is is the one, well, which will make you a very capable debater um, in the sense that here is a dialectic without the kind of, um, um, without that, uh, let's just use this term, I, I will resort to this cliche, without that moment of synthesis, um, mm. without that moment of bringing together the opposition, even just in close proximity enough to generate some kind of identity from the difference in and of itself. And so what I mean here is in Sexus Empiricus, um, there, and there are versions of this in Aristotle. And, and really, you know, if you want to take a broader look of it, it is the difference between an Aristotelian dialectic on the one hand um, and a Plotinian dialectic on the other. Uh, Plotinus was very much writing against Aristotle and thought that what Aristotle provided were, uh, was too uh, rule-bound, uh, Plotinus says. So in Sextus Empiricus, you have a dialectic that is um, the thinking of both sides of the opposition to the farthest point possible and keeping keep on thinking. Um, so these two things never really come together uh, in that respect and provides an interesting contrast, I think, to the dialectic in Plotinus and the dialectic in Hegel. But um, the thing that I want to say on that is that Hegel is also aware of the different kinds of dialectic in the Middle Ages. I mean, he points this out in his lectures on the history of philosophy. Um, he and, and, and the, the really, really interesting thing, and in fact, I um, got in an argument with this about Slavoj Žižek, because when we were discussing, you know, the, preposterously, the origins of the dialectic, uh, he pointed out, but yes, in the history of, in Hegel's lectures on the history of philosophy, he says that the dialectic in the Middle Ages is to be avoided, is a terrible thing. In fact, Hegel, yes, he says this, but what Hegel is pointing out is the fact that a kind of dialectic is the sort that should be avoided, right? And it's to understand dialectic, you know, with an S, dialectics that are plural, and it's to be reminded, as you're reminding us, that you have to understand that there are multiple versions of the dialectic available in the Middle Ages. So when Hegel picks out one and condemns it, it doesn't mean he's condemning all forms of medieval dialectic. He's smarter than that. Um, so um, that's, you know, the kind of nuance that you can bring to the text, to the Hegelian texts, uh, when um, thinking about the, the dialectic as having um, multiple forms uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, and, and, and so, we, again, the argument is that Hegel picks out a particular form against the other kinds of forms. Yeah, yes, yes. And and in particular, when you're discussing Pseudo-Dionysius, you get into what you call uh, medieval dialectical phenomenology, and you uh, explore his phrase that he's attempting to get beyond appearances. And this really looks ahead to what you're doing with literature. Um, so before we leave uh, Pseudo-Dionysius behind, can you talk a little bit about getting beyond appearances and the image and... Um, how that becomes really one of the major things that you're working with going forward. Yeah, that, that, that's very interesting. And that's, you know, I mean, one really has to traverse the middle section to get there, because what I'm trying to argue is that in Hegel, um, you find the foundations for a kind of ideology critique. 
Um, and what you need for that, I think, is on the one hand, um, theory <laughs> and history or theory and praxis, in other words. Um, so you have to course through um, that second part. I, but I can say about part three um, that this thing called medieval dialectical phenomenology, um, what I'm trying to show there, and that's the space within, that's the register within which I talk about um, Hegel and Deleuze or De Deleuze and dialectics, let's say. Um, but it is, let's say, broadly speaking, that um, medieval dialectical phenomenology comes from what we can provisionally call mysticism. I know that's a um, kind of vexed term and it doesn't really um, comprehend all um, that's available within whatever is designated by it. But um, what you have is not only in Plotinus, this notion of identity and difference are dialectical, but that in dialectics is is observation of a very intense kind. In other words, is the writing of a phenomenology is, in other words, um, what you know Bart calls, and this is way way after the fact, a history of looking. Right? That um, that there is this thing that we can think of called intersubjectivity. There are these processes that we can call recognition. Um, this, these moments that we kind of sound like the stuff of the phenomenology of, of spirit, right? Um, uh, most notoriously, again, part two creeping in here in this answer about part three, but most, most visible in, uh, the, the Lord Bondsman dialectic or the master slave dialectic, that kind of intersubjectivity, that recognition of the other. Um, this kind of intersubjectivity, this positing of an other, this recognition of, of another, um, this kind of dialectical intersubjectivity, in other words, is staged in Plotinus in his uh, encounter with the one, in his encounter with something that can be posited as an absolute other, um, in his um, exposition of how identity breaks apart into difference through its own self-reflection, right, through a, an intense kind of in itself and for itself that um, uh, for which the center can no longer hold, which becomes so intense that it breaks out into difference. And, and you know, in the Plotinian language, what that is, is um, the generation of, of out of the one, uh, out of identity into difference. In other words, the one being, um, you know, the all, in other words, which is what Plotinus calls it, giving us difference, giving us the intellectual principle, um, giving us, <laughs> what we would recognize as um, the the structures and movements necessary for cognition, uh, difference, memory, narrative, language, and being. Okay, um, and so medieval dialectical phenomenology is that, and over the centuries it becomes not you know a more you know abstract and mystified kind of uh, Neoplatonism, certainly not by the time of Deleuze, but it becomes a style, right? So, so the question of medieval dialectical phenomenology ultimately becomes a question of writing, of what makes, just, you know, putting it in this term, in, in this, in this way, what makes the phenomenology of spirit so dang different from, from the critique of pure reason, right? Um, and it is, one of the things is that it puts the viewing subject in the narrative itself about concepts, um, 
in a way, this is something that Kant hates, and this is something that he avoids. And, you know, and, and when you get to Deleuze, it becomes a style. It becomes, um, you can even see this in Nietzschean philosophy, though I think it's really um, on display in his work with Guattari, uh, A Thousand Plateaus. Um, but where Kant's, where um, there is a narrative about concepts as if you're reading a novel, as if, um, you know, we're sort of sitting, watching, you know, how, how to, to use some of the language of Nietzschean philosophy, how affirmation and multiplicity are generated in, in their encounter with identity. Uh, mm-hmm. That point of view on concepts that um, is then recorded as if it were a story about the life of concepts interacting with another which is no wonder Hegel is read as a kind of literature. Um, um, you know, this is the thing uh, Richard Rorty hates about Hegel, that it seems right, novelistic, literature sucks, it's different, it's not, it's fuzzy thinking, it's not philosophy. Um, but I think literature is quite all right, and I think it survives these critiques, as does Hegel. So that, I think that's, I hope that answers that bit about um, medieval dialectical phenomenology. I know it's ranging, but it, it has to. Okay, so that brings us into the second part of the book. And you begin the, this history section with a note that, um, <laughs> that Marx critiques Hegel for not relating his philosophy to his material context. Can you talk about... Uh, what makes Hegel a proto-Marxist and why Marx disavows him? Yes, yes. Can, can I read out that quotation? Uh, that would be because uh, it's Marx says, and, you know, and this is uh, with Engels. I mean, this is the German ideology. It's often forgotten um, Engels' hand with this work. But let's just say that it's Marx. But it's just uh, the epigraph um, that you're referring to reads uh, as follows. It has not occurred to any one of these philosophers to inquire into the connection of German philosophy with German reality, the relation of their criticism to their own material surroundings, end quote. Now, first of all, this, that is exactly what dialectics is. And in my mind, that move um, that I discussed, discussed earlier, that is the kind of reflexive view on the kinds of conceptuality that you're generating, how history makes that possible, I claim is a Hegelian move, okay? But the claim is is borne out in the analysis of the Lord Bondsman dialectic. And this is where um, I want to ask my uh, friends in theory and philosophy, are you reading Hegel? I mean, there's been lots of discussion about this particular chapter, um, and I think that's because Everyone sort of knows a little bit of something about the quote-unquote master-slave dialectic or Lord Bondsman dialectic. But in the German, um, and with the um, cross-referencing to basically everything else that Hegel wrote about the Lord Lord Bondsman dialectic, it's absolutely clear that this is an effort of Hegel to relate his philosophy, to relate his conceptuality to the contemporary German present, which was – decidedly and largely feudal, right? We want to think of Hegel as, you know, one of the first modern philosophy philosophers. And so we think of him as sort of living in modernity. And then, of course, we have, you know, Napoleon coming in heroically on his muscular white horse, you know, (laughs) which Hegel, you know, may have seen or may not have seen as he was finishing up the phenomenology of spirit, which then in turn gives a kind of modern character to the phenomenology of spirit. But it's 
All of this, I think, is forgetting the basic lessons of Marxism, which is the basic lesson of dialectics, but indeed the basic lessons of Marxism, which is the history of modes of production. Um, you can read the most untheoretical uh, account of the German states at the time. They will all tell you that Germany is still in the Middle Ages, is still a society uh, whose mode of production is what goes on, falls under the name of feudalism. Um, now, Hegel refers to these modes of production, I argue, in the Lord Bondsman dialectic, first by naming, you know, the, the um, one, you know, naming the two characters, you know, Er and Knecht, uh, not master and slave. Um, I'm sympathetic to that naming, and I'm very sympathetic to the kind of reading that that um, naming can generate. Um, but I first want to pause over Hegel and his moment and try to understand what it is he's um, doing in, in that moment. And then that naming, and then in the narrative itself, which is a narrative about labor, about working the land, um, it's a narrative about expropriation in decidedly feudal terms, um, is um, Hegel's way of telling us that he has, quoting Marx again, that it, I mean, in other words, that it has occurred to him to inquire into the connection of German philosophy with German reality. Full stop. That's Hegel. <laughs> there is your Hegel um, uh, thinking in a way that I say uh, in the introduction um, or in the preface to the book that is presciently Marxist. And, and that, that is what makes Hegel Hegelian is the dialectic is the inquiry into the material surroundings. And indeed, it is what makes Marx Marx. This is where he starts. Um, and, and, and it seems to me one of the things I try to do at the end of chapter three on the Lord Bondsman dialectic is to say um, that he never gets very far away from thinking about the Lord Bondsman dialectic in those terms. And so what I want to say, and I, and I say this elsewhere, and maybe we'll get to talk about that at the conclusion, that if that form of thinking is good enough for Marx, then it's good enough for me, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Before we leave that behind, can you talk a little bit more about the the struggle between possession versus ownership of land in what would have been Hegel's understanding of feudalism? Right, right. So Hegel is a student of the Middle Ages um, because one of the claims I want to say is that he lives in it. He understands the dynamics and contradictions of ownership and possession in his time. Um, these are the terms that contemporary historians like Mark Bloch or like J.A.F. Thompson, like J.J. Sheehan um, point out themselves without having really, you know, um, any stake in um, the question of Hegel. Um, in feudalism, you have this really interesting structure. Um, I think retrospectively Marxists would say, that um, what distinguishes feudalism from capitalism is the separation of the political instance from the economic instance. What that simply means is the fact that in um, feudalism, there is no reason why uh, a peasant producer needs to give up his or her yield to the person above him or her. Um, and that the only way that that uh, transaction transpires is through political force. You have to give this to me. Okay. Um, that's where the instance where that, that's an example of where the political and the economic are working um, hand in hand. Now, 
why the you need a political force to come in um, and, and to uh, you know extract peasant surplus is because it's never really clear. There's so many instances of this, but it's never really clear what the answer to the question is, whose land is this, right? Um, there are so many ways of answering that question. Um, and uh, one answer is an answer that is a, that attends to the problem of effective possession. So let's introduce that as a third term, possession, and you know, a, a, or a middle term, effective possession, which is to say that my family has been on this land for centuries. Um, this is our land. This is our land. Uh, now, uh, who owns the land beats me. I think the right. I think the monastery up the hill may own the land, but they're known for faking deeds. So you know, and which is notorious in the history of possession and title. Um, that you know, the literate apparatus kind of generates uh, ex nihilo uh, uh, legal documents that claim ownership. Um, and you can run up the scale of sub-infudination to um, get various answers to this question of who owns the land. And so really what that, you know, focuses our attention on is the fact that um, effective possession is, is labor, is work, is, um, um, is plowing, is Hegel calls, Hegel thinks of plowing as negation, but we know from draft material um, related to the phenomenology of spirit that, what he's talking about is plowing. In other words, working, shaping the land. Um, and so it is through work that not only do we have um, effective possession or possession, but it is through work that we gain self-possession as well. It is through work that we realize self-consciousness, okay? And this is what opens up onto the earlier marks, right? Like the idea that labor is, is what, you know, makes the human and, and fundamentally and distinguishes the human. Um, and and so, we, so we have those ideas coming um, um, out of Hegel there, uh, which are ideas that, again, you can find in the most um, kind of um, innocent sort of uh, historiography writing about the history of the Middle Ages without any stake in Hegel, which I think kind of confirms the thesis and then makes, you know, Hegel's narrative all the more compelling for looking at the problem of labor at the transition between feudalism and capitalism. But I, 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 maybe I should pause here to see um, if I can elaborate anyway. Well, actually, uh, at this point, I'd love to jump ahead into the next chapter where you say that what the Middle Ages was to Hegel, modernity is to Marx. Right, right, right. And you would kind of explore that idea with the fetish and how they both use that. Can you pick up on that point and, and explore that a little bit for listeners? Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> um, any reader of uh, Marx's Capital will note uh, that it starts out in an odd place, very different from how uh, um, some of the draft material starts out. Um, related to capital like the Gundrisa, but it's to say that Marx starts out his analysis of capital by basically talking about, among other things, and this is in part four of the first section, but talking about fetishism, talking about commodity fetishism. And it seems that it's entirely necessary to Marx, Marx to understand commodity fetishism or, you know, the compulsion for us to relate to ourselves and to each other through commodities, through the things that we acquire, through the things that, again, we possess or have, um, that he wants to explain this obsession 
through the language of the Eucharist, uh, plain and simple. Um, there, there's one, there's one point, it's in a separate writing, uh, but where Hegel talks about, um, fetishism as a kind of transubstantiation, um, that he thinks of, um, the, the kind of the, he, where he talks about in that fourth section of, of Capital, um, the, the miraculous and wondrous transformation of an ordinary thing that we use into this miraculous transformed thing that we exchange and that we name as exchange value. Um, so as I was thinking about that, and after my truly decades of reading um Hegel, I thought, you know, this sounds familiar to me. So I went back to read some of Hegel's writings on religion and some of his early theological writings as well. And I thought, ah, this is it. This is not an accident that he wants to talk about the commodity as the Eucharist. It's because Hegel, to flip the terms, this is very dialectical, but, the, but because Hegel talks about the Eucharist as a commodity. Um, as a thing that over the history of religion up into the present, and especially up through the Middle Ages, returning to that question again, where the commodity is something that is bought, where the commodity is something, is a thing through which people relate, is a commodity that, that replaces the relationship between people with a relationship between things. And I think that is where Marx gets his fetishism. I know that there is some really important foundational work I, too, have read and been deeply influenced uh, by, you know, um, William Peetz's work on, um, you know, the sources, in other words, of thinking about fetishism that Marx may have used. I think it's quite obvious that the source is Hegel in <laughs> um, thinking about the commodity as fundamentally a Eucharist, again, because Hegel will, you know, in the long run, think about the Eucharist as fundamentally a commodity. Right. Yeah. You're, you're careful to note in the book that uh, Marx's use of transubstantiation is uh, is deliberate and, um, it, you know, is taken from, as you say, Hegel's work on religion. And so when Marx is talking about the commodity in those terms, he's doing it very knowingly and he's doing it in the mode that Hegel used that term transubstantiation. I think so, because it's, it, the, 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 there's a there's an entire specular language that is there. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a, a language um, that uh, about commodities being sacralized. There's these intersubjective moments between Peter and Paul, and then really the signal here is that you know um, Marx says that you know to understand uh, you know the problem of fetishism is to enter into the misty realm of religion. I mean that that's him saying, <laughs> okay, now please bring out and, and turn to you know chapter you know X of Hegel's. Theological writings. I mean, to, to say that you need the language of religion to talk about the miracle of the commodity um, is just one of those attributes of, of Marx's style and vocabulary in that section, which points us to that. And right, and transubstantiation as a complex kind of thinking. I mean, indeed, it's not just a question of style and vocabulary, but what is it that transubstantiation impels us to think, in other words? I mean, how can you think of um, how can you violate the principle of non-contradiction as from Aristotle affirmed by Kant, of course, and as disrupted by Hegel. But how is it that you can think that two different things are in fact the same thing, that you can look at a Eucharistic wafer and say, here is the bloody sacrificial body of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? What is required? What are you thinking? Um, and it's that 
thinking that Marx maps onto the thinking about, okay, here's the thing that I think of as a use value. Here's the thing that makes me feel special and different from everyone else. And yet here's a thing that is an exchange value that everyone else is also using to think differently about himself or herself. To have these two thoughts at the same time about a single thing, these two contradictory thoughts about a single thing at the same time is, you know, what transubstantiation as a term provides us. And, and I think that's what Marx really wants to focus on in, in using that term. On that, uh, kind of on that note, thinking about using particular terms and particular forms, let's jump to uh, the, the final part of the book, part three, where you talk about uh, literature and ideology and um, and you come back to that idea of what representations are and let's, right. um, if you would, jump into the way that you explore the medieval genres and how they're used um, as critiques of political economy and what some of that looks sure. like, in particular, uh, Furstenspiegel and how you use that going forward uh, in wrapping up the book and coming to Deleuze and to uh, theory proper, what we would consider what we think of as critical theory today. Right, right. Let me, let me, um, come on in. My cat is just screaming at the door. So if I let him, <laughs> he'll calm down. Hello. Um, <laughs> so, so what I want to do there is to, and, and this is something I'm going to return to in the follow-up to the birth of theory, but is to say, um, what is the status of literature in all of this? If we're doing theory, if we're doing history, you know, if we're talking about style, if we're talking about vocabulary, can we talk about literature? Can we talk about genre? Now, the answer to that, as it's, you know, in the Marxist tradition is absolutely yes. Um, I would really, you know, I mean, part of what I want to say is that the um, a particular kind of historicism, what we name as historicism, beating literature in context uh, began in Hegelianism. That's part of the account that I offer in the final chapter, chapter six, um, and looking at 19th century forms of Hegelianism in, in England. Okay. Um, but that's to open up to say, what is it about literature that is so important? Why do we care? What is it about literary thinking um, that uh, enables us to do these two other things, enables us to think um, theoretically, enables us um, to um, think historically, not just write theory in this way that Hayden White, you know, talks about in, you know, the genres of history and so on and so forth, um, but to um, how is thinking historically and thinking theoretically um, facilitated by literature? Um, and so, you know, th th this is touching on a rich tradition of, of Marxist historicism that I think reaches its apex in the work of my teacher, uh, Frederick Jameson. Um, I'm talking here about the political unconscious. Um, and that's to say, then, that, um, right, literature is doing conceptual work, just to get to the point. Um, we don't think of literature as science. Uh, some people like to think of literature as philosophy. We have journals uh, uh, dealing specifically with that question. But what sort of conceptual space is literature? And I want to close on literature in the book. Because that's, that's fundamentally um, dialectics in and of itself. It's been identified by the dialectical uh, tradition that literature is a kind of conceptual thinking. But it is not um, 
it's a different kind of conceptual thinking. It is not the same as a concept. And so what I was interested in doing in chapter five and six is first showing how literary thinking is crucial to how Hegel writes about dialectical thinking, that in the phenomenology of spirit, we not only deal with, you know, the genre of, of tragedy, and that's really what everyone wants to talk about, right? Um, and, you know, and the tragic form as a literary form, but to remind ourselves um, that all through the phenomenology of spirit, we have these genres, um, and they look to me to be largely medieval genres. Um, we have, I didn't discuss this in the birth of theory, uh, but we have romance um, in that section on frenzy and self-conceit. Uh, and we have Furstenspiegel, or uh, Mirror for Princes writing, uh, which part of my argument there is to say that Hegel adopts a genre to offer a critique of Adam Smith. Hegel never went to England. What, what is, what's at stake in a critique of Adam Smith, right? Hegel never went to England to witness firsthand English modernity. It wasn't Hegel who was in the British Library, uh, like a, <clears throat> a Karl Marx, you know, writing the critique of capital. Um, so Hegel never saw this stuff firsthand. His context was one that was largely agrarian and feudal, hence, you know, the often, you know, observed, um, uh, idea that, in other words, that, that Germany is belated, uh, that, that it's behind and historically, okay? Um, Hegel uses genre through which to critique the wealth of nations, to critique um, modern political economy. In other words, there is uh, Hegel's attempt to think about the critique of capitalism at, through Adam Smith, right? And so then we get a sense of genre as something that or let's just say broadly a sense of literature um, as uh, indicative of something, that, that it's through literature that you can think about the history of capitalism. It is through literature through which is registered the contradictions that get us from feudalism to capitalism. And this is entirely what you see in a tradition of Marxist writing from Lukács uh, to, to Macheret to Jameson, and to many, many points in between, okay? And so if I wanted to, so I wanted to end the book, that's chapter five, I wanted to end the book in saying, um, what is it about literature? Let's look at this question of, again, okay? Part of what I do in that final chapter on dialectical interpretation is to, um, to, is to embroider the, the critical history as we know it, to say that dialectical interpretation, the dialectical interpretation of literature precedes um, you know, uh, Marx, who, of course, was a great reader of literature, loved literature, reader of Shakespeare, uh, mm -hmm. reading literature to his daughter at night, all the rest that the dialectical, you know, um, but but after but after Marx, indeed, right, the point being after Marx, indeed, you don't really see uh, Marx didn't write in aesthetics. Right. I mean, he wrote a treatise on calculus, for God's sake, but he did not. <laughs> but he did not write in aesthetics. We, we really, really miss that. And it really takes you really only see that um, much, much later, um, I think, in its proper form uh, in, in Lukács. Um, but bef between Marx and Lukács is the dialectical criticism that goes on in, in England um, that looks exactly at these questions that I'm, that I'm um, identifying here. The other thing I do in Chapter 6 is to say, um, let's focus again on 
the question of literature and philosophy as the question of the concept and the figure. It's to say that philosophy never really gets away from figural thinking, never gets away from literature, that conceptuality is always undone through the figuration, through the style, through the exemplarity, through the example necessary to express itself. That is the lesson of the phenomenology of spirit. That is the lesson of Hegelianism. That is the lesson of dialectics. Um, and that is why you end a book on the birth of theory and literature. And that is why you read literature. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. That does really bring us neatly to the end of the book, though there's so much uh, richness of detail and research and thinking that's there that we haven't had time to explore. Before we wrap up, uh, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the first response to the book. It's been out for long enough that there's been some writing about it. Um, you know, in the past year, a couple of pieces published in PMLA about the book. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the first response to the book has been? Okay. <laughs> Yes, no, thank you very much. I mean, we'll see, you know, what happens over the next two years, I guess. Uh, but um, most of the responses have been extremely positive and generous. Um, it's obviously produced some debate, um, some with some of my friends. Um, okay. Um, and, and, you know, I love this because it, 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 people are talking about dialectics, uh, in this very kind of fundamental Hegelian Marxian way that I think a lot of contemporary criticism has gotten away from. So even if I disagree with a particular reception of the book, you're talking about Hegel. <laughs> Looking again at the phenomenology of spirit, you're having to ask this, these questions. Um, I mean, the thing, for instance, I love Warren Montauk um, in the PMLA panel wrote a very generous, uh, it was, he was critical but to me, I, I loved it because it, it, the, the thing that I want to say is that so Warren Montag is very known is, 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 is probably the most important Althusserian scholar out there. Um, and I've been reading him for years. So I was delighted um, to see his analysis. And I didn't expect ahead of time for someone who studies Althusser to, to really kind of be in the mood to, to write about a book on Hegel. But he, he but he came in there with, I think, immense critical generosity to the extent of saying, OK, I'm going to look at this history of philosophy of get again from the perspective of of Hegel and dialectics. And that's what I want people to do. I mean, if you're doing that, then we have something to talk about. And and so that, that would be my first response, even to, you know, readers who might be skeptical about some of the claims. I mean, there is a, a there there are. are a lot of reviews that are extremely generous and aren't skeptical at all. But even the ones, again, that are negative, we'll say, um, are thinking about Hegel, uh, clarifying their own ideas about Hegel, and bringing Hegel back into the conversation, which I think is a positive thing. So that would be my, my, my first response there. And, you know, in, in the section on PMLA that we, we read, you know, um, it, it, it seemed to play out. I mean, it, it, I think apart from the review by um, uh, C.D. Blanton, um, uh, uh, an amazing scholar at Berkeley who uh, has just published a book called Epic Negation, which I think is is the most important book on, on dialectics to be published yet in, in modernism, uh, if not in literature. 
um, recently. I, I would certainly check that one out too. Extraordinary scholar. Um, also an example of saying, hey, I'm going to look at this history of the dialectic again um, and wanted to sort of take me to task for um, not clarifying what I meant about analogy. And, you know, and yes, that means that, you know, that footnote or two there wasn't sufficient. Um, I confess, I, I didn't look. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's always the case. You think you can get away with it by writing a footnote, but no, no, no. Um, and largely, I would say just my general response to um, the other contributions that it seemed to me that um, when we're getting into really the weeds of the thing, um, most people like to focus on one chapter or another. Uh, why I admire Blanton's response, why I admire uh, Warren Montag's response, um, um, why I admire uh, Jordana Rosenberg's response is they try to deal with the whole book. Uh, the other the other authors, I think, want to you know, hone in on some of the details of the particular chapters without looking at what the rest of the book is trying to argue. Um, I get that as well, uh, because it's just the case that, um, you know, how much of this can one handle? I mean, and how much of a book, you know, every book is sort of known by a particular chapter or two. So, you know, it makes perfect sense that if you're going to spend time with Hegel, why don't we just talk about the master-slave dialectic? Because that's where most people spend their time <laughs> if they're not, you know, doing something, you know, uh, <laughs> doing something else like uh, going for a walk in the woods or whatnot. So, yeah, that's that's my general um, response to that. But I, I must say that I, I was very engaged um, um, by that opportunity, and and it allowed me to write uh, a response called uh, "The Function of Theory at the Present Time." which was an opportunity to state in um, fewer than 10,000 words uh, what the hell I'm doing and what the theory is about. So that was, that, that was extraordinary. And to do it in the PMLA, which has a, you know, an enormous readership, I mean, yeah, let's, let's do this. Um, so I, I have to say I was very pleased by the reception of, of the book in that forum. Thanks so much. Um, we're wrapping up at this point, but before we go, could you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on now? Yes. Um, so I'm finishing a book. Um, so the, the birth of theory uh, is one uh, is the first installment of a three volume work. Um, and I'm finishing the second installment. You know, you can think of it as the sequel to the birth of theory. Um, mm -hmm. It's called Foundations of the Dialectic. Um, so it's another one of those stories about what's essential about the dialectic, but also another origins story, let's say. Um, this time I'm focusing in on the encounter or the relationship between Kant and Hegel. So the book really starts in Kant. I think that one thing, um, I mean, this is a, has been observed to me um, at, uh, in conference panels that, you know, I wish, you know, Andrew talked more about Kant. I mean, I do have a section on Kant, and, right, and the antinomies. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, and so I begin in, in Kant and, um, um, and then carry the book forward. Now, the structure of the book um, is um, organized around key terms in the dialectic. So um, I, I focus on terms that are the ex are not the expected ones. So if this is not a, I'm not going to be talking about thesis, antithesis and synthesis, though. I do you know, say why we shouldn't just talk about that. Uh, 
But I also don't really want to dwell um, overlong on alphabung or on contradiction or any of the other uh, terms that are familiar to, you know, in the dialectical discourse. Uh, what I focus on um, and what I devote a chapter to each is on um, one, the first chapter being on the example uh, by Spiele, the example, in other words, in Kant. That is, Kant hates examples. Hegel loves examples. <laughs> How do you get from Kant to Hegel? Right there at that moment is another, is, you know, um, foundational to the conception of dialectics. It's why Hegel turned to dialectics. And then in the following chapter, we deal with um, the image or the build um, and looking at the sort of specular um, forms that Hegel adopts early in the phenomenology of spirit and, and throughout the whole thing. Um, then the third chapter is on the element. Um, element is a word that runs throughout all kinds of dialectical writing, um, and it's never been noticed. It's never been picked out as one of the key terms here. And so that is a term that links Hegel to Marx, um, that draws in the question of, of, of realism, literary and philosophical. And then finally, uh, I have a chapter um, on substance um, from Aristotle to Zizek, really. And, and again, it's one of those long, you know, uh, has the feel of, say, chapter two or chapter six of the birth of theory, um, a kind of an exposition from antiquity to the Middle Ages to modernity about what the philosophical term substance means, because I think there is a lot of confusion about that. So, for example, when one, when one says, um, um, talks about you know, social substance, for instance, what exactly is that? Um, and now that we're a lot of people are interested in talking about matter and materiality, substance is often thrown into that. Um, and it's just generating a lot of confusion. And I think that's where dialectics can clarify um, not only um, what substance is and how we should think about it uh, after Kant, um, but it's also then an opportunity for me to do something that I've always done in my teaching but haven't yet done in print, which is to talk about Hegel and Spinoza on the question of substance. So you're going to get your Hegel and Spinoza in that final chapter. If you survive the first three, you get that. <laughs> Andrew, thanks so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking. It's a pleasure reading the book, The Birth of Theory, out from the University of Chicago Press. So uh, go out and get your copy. Andrew, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Carl, it was great to have this conversation with you. I'm um, very grateful for the opportunity as well. 